Good evening, everyone. Welcome to 128. For those of us who are new to this group, it's called 128, uh, coming from Colossians 128. And I think it will be helpful to remind us of what that is because of the text that is in front of us tonight. Uh, Colossians 128 says, Him we proclaim, that is Christ we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with wisdom so that we may present everyone complete or mature in Christ. Our text tonight is certainly going to demand maturity from us, but uh, I also checked that this is a similar or the same text that we also taught to our youth recently. So I think we should be able to handle this. But I must warn you that there's quite a lot in our text for tonight. We are going through the book of Genesis, and we come now to Genesis chapter 19, and Lord willing, we'll look at verse 30 to verse 38 tonight. Another thing that I'd mention by way of introduction is that uh, in this church, we teach uh, verse by verse or expository preaching, and so um, we don't have to struggle through finding texts every week to teach on. We just teach the text that is next in line to the one that we taught before. And so that means we cannot skip uh, texts that don't align with what is happening around us, or we cannot skip a text just because the topic is not familiar or uh, something of our liking. Uh, we teach what is in the text. So this is a part of the scriptures, and so God must have a purpose in putting it there. With those initial comments, let's turn to Genesis chapter 19, and we are going to look from verse 30 to verse 38. You know, if you look at the human heart, human heart cries for justice. You know, societies are able to sustain themselves because of the concept of justice and fairness. As we think of judgments in the scriptures, uh, it is portrayed in many, many ways. Last time when we were here, we talked about judgment that came about at the end of the time. But let's kind of quickly review some of the judgments that scripture talks about, several kinds of them. Uh, as, as we think of believers, there is the mention of the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, which is the judgment of those who are the resurrected and the raptured believers in heaven. And so if you're a follower of Christ, you will be judged for your works. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there is a judgment seat of Christ for believers. Uh, we have also judgments that will occur as a part of the tribulation period, once the church is raptured, which is the period after the rapture but before the millennium. Uh, these judgments are mentioned, and we're currently going through an evening series. Uh, uh, our pastor is teaching through Revelation. Then there is the great white throne judgment, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, uh, which is the final judgment of unbelievers for their sins. Uh, this judgment will occur at the end of the millennium, but before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. 
Now it is this judgment that is the most discussed and talked about. It is at this judgment that unbelievers from the beginning of history, of history of the world until that, the time that we are all in, will be judged for their sins. And those who are not in Christ, which is all of them, will be relegated to the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. Now those are judgments in the future. But in the history of the world, and even as it exists right now, uh, there have been judgments that have already occurred. Uh, think of our study back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, they were judged for their sins. They disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because Adam was the representative head of all of humanity, the judgment on them affected and impacted all of creation. Isn't it Paul who writes in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. A judgment on Adam and Eve. Then there was the judgment of the flood that occurred during the days of Noah. God sent a worldwide flood in response to man, uh, man's sin and rebellion during that time. In fact, Genesis 6.5 has the most um, explicit statement of the depravity of man, where Moses records for us, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, this judgment wiped away as we uh, studied together all of humanity and all the human animal kingdom that existed except for Noah and his family, and the animals that they had taken with them into the ark. You see, but that judgment wasn't a warning enough to people that came from Noah's family because it was followed by uh, the judgment at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where in disregard and clear disobedience to God's command, the people remained in one location when God had told them to spread out, to move out, and so what did God do? God caused confusion in their language, and then they dispersed. That's Genesis 11. Now these judgment, judgments impacted all who existed at that time. But when you come to Romans 1, Romans 1 actually tells us that the judgment of God is not only seen in banishing and wiping away or creating confusion in language, but it also consists in God's action of giving people over. Uh, three times uh, Paul uses that phrase in Romans chapter 1, uh, a, a rise in sexual promiscuity, a rise in homosexuality, and depraved thinking and a depraved mind itself is a judgment from God. God, in giving them up, is letting them face the consequences of their sins even while they were still here on the earth. And then we have some local judgments as the one that we have been studying for the last three weeks in Genesis 19. Uh, this was a judgment that was specific to Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities in the valley of Jordan. Uh, why did God judge these people? In Genesis 18 verse 20 we are told, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. 
I wonder sometimes what God's estimation of what is happening in our nation would be. But the interesting thing of Genesis 18 and 19 is it describes a 24-hour period since the arrival of the three visitors in Genesis 18. Uh, They arrive at noon at the Oaks of Mamre, where Abraham and his people lived. By the evening of that day, the visitors are in Sodom, warning Lot and his families. And by morning the next day, the cities that are near Sodom and Sodom itself are destroyed. You see, they face the wrath and judgment of God. And at the request of Lot, we saw last week, he was allowed to go uh, take refuge in a small town called Zoar. And here he lived for some time. And that's where we pick up our text for today, Genesis chapter 19, verse 30 to verse 38. I've titled our lesson for tonight, The Judgment on Sodom, part 3. Not very creative, you would say, but it applies to our text for today. This is in continuation with what happened the last uh, two lessons that we looked at. As we think of the judgment on Sodom, we begin by looking at the continuing descent of Lot, verse 30. Read with me, Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Now, to understand why this is a continuing descent, we have to understand where Lot's story, where Lot's life really started or began with. If you were to turn to Genesis chapter 11, at the end of Genesis 11, we are told that Lot began in the Middle East with his uncle and his grandfather, Abraham Uh, Terah and Abraham in Ur of the Chaldeans. He would have been, Lot would have been aware of God's call on his uncle as the family moved from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land that God was showing there, modern-day Israel. That was chapter 11. In chapter 12, Lot accompanies his uncle to Egypt when there was a famine in the land, and most likely Lot was privy to the fact that his uncle had lied to Pharaoh. And he surely saw the Lord's hand upon his uncle as the Lord struck Pharaoh's house with great plagues. God protected Abraham and Sarah in spite of Abraham's sinful actions. That's Genesis chapter 12. In chapter 13, we see a rich and a prosperous Lot, one who was blessed by the Lord as regards to his flocks and his herds and his tents. His possessions grew so much that he and Abraham had to separate and go their own ways. And given a choice by his uncle Abraham, he he selects a land that was around the valley of Jordan. Uh, This was also a land that was well watered. In fact, Moses actually describes it as a land that was like the garden of the Lord, that is the garden of Eden. But the people in Sodom, where Lot was headed to, they were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. That's chapter 13. In chapter 14, we get the first major indication that a judgment is going to come or is coming as the cities in this Jordan Valley are attacked by at least five kings and their armies and many are taken hostage, including Lot. Now, Abraham, with his tiny army of 318 trained men, is able to overpower 
five mighty armies, and he's able to rescue his nephew. Now, we don't hear much of Lot after this chapter. We don't hear about him in chapter 15, 16, or 17, and even 18. But it is clear in chapter 18, if you were to study that, uh, which we did, that God is getting ready to pour out his wrath on the exceedingly wicked inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Valley of Jordan. Now, from the rich heritage and resources that Lot enjoyed, he's now living in Sodom in a house. And perhaps from a world's perspective and point of view, living a life that is well off. You see, he's a leader in the town, after all. He's sitting at the, at the gates, being a part of the important discussions that take place at the city gates. But all of that is not impressive in the eyes of the Lord. Because, you see, the Lord is more concerned about your heart more than anything else. And for the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and, uh, and the one who created everything on the earth and certainly belongs to him, he's not going to be impressed with one rich man or his wealth. And so from the oaks of Mamre, where he was flourishing and he was doing well under the mentorship of his uncle to the city of Sodom, the city, and now to the city of Zoar, and presently as you come to chapter 19, now in living in the mountains, that's quite a, quite a descent. But notice a few things in the verse itself, verse 30. It was Lot's request, if you remember, that the angels allowed Lot to seek refuge in the city of Zoar. He was the one who pleaded with the angels to let him go there. And the angels had instructed Lot and his family in verse 17 to escape to the mountains to begin with. And I'll go back to verse 17. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains. But Lot, he felt that that would mean certain destruction for him because he did not trust the plan that the Lord had for him. And so he asks to be uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to seek refuge in Zohar, and he's allowed to go there. And because of him, the city is then spared. But verse 30 is telling us that he does not end up living in Zohar after all. Uh, we are told that he went up from Zohar. Uh, that would mean that the, valley, uh, that the city is in the valley. And then he says it stayed in, he stayed in the mountains, the very place that he was instructed to go to begin with. Uh, this, by the way, verse 30, is the only proactive action recorded on Lot's part in this section. Uh, this is the only action that he takes. The rest of the chapter will tell us about the actions that are taken on him. He is passive. The verse also tells us the reason for why he left Zoar. He was afraid to stay in Zoar. We are not told why he is afraid Perhaps he did not fully trust the word of the messengers from God who told them, told him that he would not destroy Zoar. Uh, perhaps he expected Zoar to be different from Sodom, uh, but found that this city was just like Sodom, or maybe even worse than Sodom was in its exceeding wickedness. We are not told the reason, but considering that Zoar was in line to be destroyed along with the other cities, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not hard for us to imagine that Lot saw the same evil and wickedness that was displayed in Sodom. 
Notice finally the location he ends up being in. He is in a cave with his two daughters. Uh, From the affluence and prosperity he experienced living with Abraham to seeking more of it when he moved to Sodom, but without the blessings of God, and now in, in a cave, a dark, abandoned cave, just with two of his daughters. One can't help but wonder if Lot thought about his life with his uncle. I wondered, would, and perhaps he wondered, would things, would, have, would things be different if he would have gone back to his uncle and, and sought refuge for himself and his daughters there? Uh, the text doesn't tell us why he didn't do that. Uh, perhaps pride kept him back. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that he was living an affluent life once, but now finds himself in a cave, the continuing descent of Lot. Uh, Perhaps some of us find ourselves in such a situation. Uh, You've made one sinful choice after another and now think that it is impossible to get back to where you should have been. Uh, You have gone on in sin, your sin, for far too long. You may have started well in your Christian life and spiraled down into a life of sin. Now, Satan probably has convinced you that there is no way out of your situation. Uh, But God's word says, if any of you are are in such a situation, that if you were to confess your sins and that repent of what happened, that God is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Oh, that is God's promise. And God is a promise keeper. He's a faithful God. You do have a choice. You can put an immediate stop to your descent. You do not have to continue on the path that you are on. Call out to God. Ask help from him. Ask help from fellow believers. Reach out to your leaders who care for your soul. You see, Lord had a choice. He did not exercise that choice wisely. The continuing descent of Lord. Secondly, We think of the debased plan of Lot's daughters as we look at verse 31 to 35. Uh, First of all, we begin by looking at the plan that is devised, verse 31 and 32. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father." Notice, first of all, what happened. The two daughters come together and they make a plan. The plan, we are told, is initiated by the older daughter, the firstborn. But what leads them to make this plan? One wonders, the daughters have witnessed what went on in Sodom and the cities of the valley. They have seen the destruction. And now only the both of them and their father remain. The father, we are told, is an old man. He is advanced in age. And watching all the cities that are destroyed around them, they conclude that there is not a man in the world who would be a potential husband to them. So it's important to continue the family, and so we need to act quickly, and we need to act with a sense of urgency. Uh, What then is the solution? What is the plan? Verse 32. It is to make their father drink wine, get him drunk, lie with him. And in this text, if you observe, there's no idioms 
that are used. There's a plain and a straightforward language that is used there of the act that they will perform. Reading their plan, you can't help but imagine that the daughters have very likely seen this happen in the city that they grew up in. Uh, perhaps their relatives or their neighbors were involved in such a situation. We don't know for sure. It's hard not to imagine that. Daughters hatching an exceedingly depraved and a debased plan to sleep with their own father and produce children. All of this noticed carefully with a noble end in mind to preserve their family through their father, a phrase that is repeated twice in these uh, five verses. There's a plan then devised. Uh, that plan is then executed, verse 33 to 35. Uh, the plan was cooked up by the sisters. It was initiated by the older sister, and now it's time to execute that plan. Notice verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. And so they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Ah, you almost feel like going taking a shower yourself after reading these verses. You know, it begins with the firstborn. After all, the plan was devised by her. And Moses highlights the fact as we look at verse 33 that it was now night, a darkness. A darkness or night, as we learned earlier, is frequently a picture of wickedness and, and sin. It's now night. They get him drunk, and he loses his sense of what is going on. He's so drunk that he does not know what happened to him. Uh, twice we are told that he did not know, verse 33 and then verse 35. He's so drunk that he does not realize what's going on. See, the plan, though, was successful with the firstborn, and then it's repeated with the younger daughter. And we are not going to elaborate any further on what happened. It's a plain and a clear plan to see. But I do want to draw some lessons before we look at the three verses that follow. First of all, some quick applications for us. Firstly, ends do not justify the means. Ends do not justify the means. Twice, Moses repeats the sentence by the older daughter, which is that we may preserve our family through our father. We need to get to a place where our family continues. And so it does not matter how we get there. Well, to God, it does matter how you get there. God is as much interested in our final goals as he is in how you get to that goal. Is it any wonder that for the leaders of the church, as we look at more than 16 or 18 uh, qualifications that are mentioned for elders, a majority of them have to do with that elder's character. God's expectations from us are not that, not that we not only have good godly goals, but the means we employ to reach those goals are also God-honoring. First Peter 1, 15 and 16, P 
Peter writes, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Some behavior? No, all your behavior. Because it is written, he says, because you shall be holy for I am holy. Ends do not justify the means. Secondly, perhaps as you look at this text, you're wondering What's it, what is the biblical teaching on drinking, or specifically drinking alcohol? Now, this story has so much in common with the story that we looked at earlier in Genesis 6 to 8 as we looked at Noah's story. In Genesis 9, we are told that Noah drank of the wine from the vineyard that he had planned and he became drunk. But here we find Lot, and although he did not know when his daughters lay with him, again, that's something that is mentioned twice, verse 33 and 35, he certainly was in control and knew when he began to drink. God's word has a lot to say about drinking alcohol. And while it has a lot to say about drinking, it does not explicitly forbid a believer from drinking drinks that have alcoholic content. In fact, there are passages that portray wine and impact of wine in positive and encouraging terms. Now, before you go and do something, you need to hear what I have to say about this or what God's word has to say about this. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 7, Solomon writes, Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. In Psalm 104, the psalmist writes, verse 14 and 15, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he he may make his face glisten with oil, and food which sustains man's heart. In Amos chapter 9, verse 14, it's written, Also I, that is the Lord, will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And so it does refer to drinking in positive ways. Now that does not mean that you can just go and drink away. Because while it does not prohibit drinking, what the scriptures do prohibit is getting drunk. Getting influenced by alcohol. The Bible does condemn drunkenness. I turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. We look at the impact of being under the influence of alcohol can have on our senses. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29 onwards. Who has a woe? Who has a sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Who are those people? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things, and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. 
They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I shall seek another drink. A tragic situation. Uh, describing what happens if you let alcohol influence you or be drunk with alcohol. And interestingly, being drunk or drunkards is described as a condition we were in before we were washed and sanctified and justified. First uh, Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. When we are drunk, we are controlled by what we have drunk ourselves with. And so we are commanded to not let our bodies be controlled by or mastered by anything. Remember Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to offer our bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice. You have got to be able to say to yourself, well, let me take another drink because it honors the Lord to be able to really drink that way. So what should we do? What does Paul write to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.18? He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit influence you. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit rather than the influence of alcoholic drinks. Now, you've got to hear the entire thing before you come to any conclusion. Uh, it's a similar thing that we can talk about when we think of smoking or smoking cigars even. Somebody recently commented to me that there are some people who are going to smell like cigars for eternity because they didn't find anything wrong with it. And again, don't get me wrong, uh, explicitly not prohibited if I have to put a bottom line in there, but certainly you know yourselves well. Don't do anything that would dishonor the Lord. Uh, don't do anything that uh, will mark you for the wrong things. Uh, be about reproach, as even the word commands us to be. So, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, not alcohol, would be the conclusion there. But there's another thing that is happening in our text here. Uh, what is the biblical teaching on incest? When you come to this text, or perhaps this text itself, feels like this is the larger issue. Now, in studying the passage, you might conclude that this is the main issue, that this is the main sin in this passage. But as we come to the end of the passage, we recognize that this actually is not the main issue. It's a, it is an issue. It is a big issue. But it is not the main issue in this passage. The main intention behind Moses recording this passage is to instruct us as to the origins of the two of the largest enemies of Israelites, which he will talk about in the last three verses. But that still leaves us with the question, what does the Bible have to say about incest? What is incest? Well, essentially, it is a sexual relationship between close relatives. Is there a prohibition against it? Yes, there is. In Leviticus 18, uh, verse 6 to verse 18, you can read for yourself. But verse 6 says, None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. 
As you let that settle in, you might say to yourself, but wasn't it allowed when we were initially created? Uh, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve had to marry each other after all. Abraham married his half-sister, and here we have Lot and the example of his daughters. But there, is, there seems to be no immediate uh, consequence to their violation of God's law. So when did incest become sin? Now one view on that is that it became sin once God commanded against it in Leviticus 18. According to this view, it wasn't sin until God commanded against it. Uh, what was it then before that? It was essentially merely marrying a close relative. That's what it was. Now, another view is that God tolerated it, although it was not his initial design, God tolerated it, but that there was always this sense that it was not good and healthy in the long term. So which one is it? Was it always sin, or did it become sin once God prohibited it? Now, it is clear from the scriptures that God allowed it before he prohibited it. Uh, regardless of the two positions, something seemed to be obvious. Uh, there would be no multiplication of people if God had not allowed it. As you think of Adam and Eve's sons and daughters. And so, knowing God and his character, God had good reasons to allow it. However, as people began to multiply, what began to increase were the abnormalities regarding gen uh, genetics. And so genetic abnormalities grew in the early days, days immediately following creation, and once sin entered the world, at that time the human genetic code was not as defective as it is now. It was free of any defects. Now even if we believe that it was not sin, but it became a sin, as you look closely at this account in Genesis 19, you begin to sense that those who were involved in the act knew that something was not right about their actions. How so? Well, first of all, I mentioned one thing already. You see, it was in the night that they chose to do what they did to their father. Not only that, they had to get their father drunk before they could lie with him. They had to make him lose his senses, lose his ability to make proper choices in order to go ahead with their plan. They had a sense that what they were doing then would not be approved by God, would be sinful. And so as I began to look at the text, the bigger question is not when did this become sin? The bigger question is what does God's word have to say about it to us today, those of us who are living in the 21st century? Clearly, it teaches us that this is sin. We derive that from the same passage uh, that I just read a moment earlier, Leviticus 18. That is Old Testament, some of us might say. Are there any things in the New Testament uh, about incest? Well, yes, there are two instances in the New Testament about incest. Uh, the first one is when Herod Antipas, remember him? He's not the Herod that existed when Jesus was a baby, but this is his son, Herod Antipas, who marries Herodias, who was actually his niece. And what does John the Baptist do? He condemns Herod for marrying Herodias, who was not just his niece, but she was also his brother's wife. Mark chapter 6. That's one instance. But in the second one, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 12, 
the sin that Apostle Paul uh, accuses of the brethren. Notice, you don't have to turn there, but the Apostle Paul delivers the individual accused of this sin to Satan, he says. Paul writes about this as he condemns the sin as immorality, an immorality of such a kind that it does not even exist among the Gentiles, he says. You've become arrogant, you've not mourned that this was happening, incest was happening among you, and you've not removed or excommunicated the one who has done this. Clearly then, even from the New Testament's perspective, incest is sin. Overall, as we look at the scriptures then, scriptures do teach that this is sin and condemns it as such. That brings us to the last three verses in this section. We've looked at the continuing descent of Lot, the debased plan of Lot's daughters. Thirdly, the devastating consequences of the plan, verse 36 to 38. Thus both, uh, so thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name, name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Both the daughters ended up conceiving a child by their father. The first one they call Moab, Mo meaning from, and Ab or Av meaning father, from the father. A little shameless, wouldn't you think, to openly declare on the basis of what the, what the name of the child was. The younger also bore a son, and he was also called, he was called rather Ben-Ami, a son of my kin. You see, Genesis is the book of beginnings, and so it provides us information how the neighbors of Israel had their origin. Now, the beginnings of these nations is important because in the long term, these become a source of great problems for the Israelites. And so it's helpful for us to know how they began the Moabites would live just east of the Dead Sea, and the Ammonites, on the other hand, would live north of where the Moabites were. Now, what kind of a trouble did these two nations lead Israel into? Moab, on its part, led the Israelites into Baal worship on its way to Canaan, a story that is recorded for us in Numbers 25. But it was, the, it was both the Moabites and the Ammonites who hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel as they traveled through the promised land. And we read about that in Numbers 22 and 23. And as a result of that, God bans them from entering the assembly of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 and 4, it says, No Ammonite or no Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. These neighbors then led the Israelites into idolatry, but not only that, they hired prophets to proclaim curses on Israel. But the relationship between the Moabites and the Israelites was not always bad. The curse on them was not because of their ethnic background, but because of their lack of faith in the true God. 
Because if you, were if you were to continue to read the scriptures, we find that these Ammonites and these Moabites who trusted in the Lord, who trusted in Yahweh, were, were allowed in the assembly of the Lord. In fact, we have a book in the Bible that is named after a Moabitess, that to a woman, and her name was what? Ruth, yeah. She married Boaz and ultimately ended up becoming an ancestor of King David and therefore, by that line, also of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is grace, even as we were singing about earlier. But we also have Nama, who is an Ammonite, who became King Solomon's wife. In fact, Nama was the mother of Rehoboam. And so as we look at these two nations, we also see God's grace on them. And we learn that in the lessons that we will uh, capture from, from this particular chapter. The continuing descent of Lot, the debased plan of Lot's daughters, and finally the devastating consequences of their plan. What can we learn from this section of God's word? Uh, first of all, we are to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. If there's an obvious lesson we can learn from Lot's life, it is this, that be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's uh, John Owen, the, the Puritan, his statement. Now it's interesting to note that the sin to which, uh, if you remember, the sin to which Lot was willing to offer his virgin daughters uh, to the depraved mob in Sodom, he says, remember, let me bring my daughters out to you and do to them whatever you like, is the exact sin he himself has fallen into, getting sexually involved with his daughters. In a sense, we've come full circle, haven't we? Also, the story ends with the exact sins, sins of sexual promiscuity, for which God had declared judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And just like Lot's wife, Lot and his daughters may have left the city of Sodom behind them, but they have carried the morality of Sodom with them, and it lives on. In his book, The Mortification of Sin, where we get this particular lesson from, which is an exposition of Romans 8.13, Paul writes, For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Owen goes on to give us some principle, nine directives for us to how to attack sin. Grant Gaines in his article on this highlights those for us. This, by the way, will be slides uh, that will be available for you so you don't have to write every one of them. But first of all, he begins by saying, diagnose sin's severity. What kind of a depth are you into sin? How long have you been involved in that sin? Then he says, grasp sin's serious consequences. Be convinced of your guilt. If you try to play uh, what we call as the victim card, you know, I didn't do it, it just happened to me, you're never going to convince yourself of your guilt. Earnestly, earnestly desire deliverance. Consider the relationship between your sins and your natural temper temperament. Avoid occasions that incite sin. If you know that if I watch something after, let's say, 10 o'clock in the night, 
I'm going to end up sitting and watching things, which is going to lead me one thing to another. By the time I know it, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. If you, knew that that, if you know that that's what happens with you, then you're putting yourselves into occasions that incite sin. Address sin's first signs. Evaluate yourself. What is it that triggers sins in me? What is it that starts this process within which I sin? And just like the principle that Paul shares in Ephesians 4, uh, you have to put this off, but replace it with meditating on God's glory. Put on the aspect of meditating on God's glory. Replace your thinking with focusing on God's glory. And finally, he says, don't rush to comfort yourself. Don't rush to comfort yourself. Don't think you have... If you have not done something for a day that you're over it, and Satan will never tempt you again in that particular area. Oh, Satan wants you to think that way. He wants you to think you're, you're strong. He wants you to think that you're beyond temptation. But it's exactly in those moments that he will tempt you and you will fall again. In the article, Gaines goes on to say, sin is like an aggressive snake. If we don't proactively attack sin, it will prove deadly. He says, thankfully, we are, not, we are not alone in the fight. The power to kill sin comes from Christ through the Holy Spirit. As we focus on snuffing out sin, he says, we must also draw near to the throne of grace. It's there that we will find grace to help in our time of need. Effort is necessary, but as Owen says, mortification of any sin must be by a supply of grace. Of ourselves, we cannot do it. Don't try to fight sin in your own strength. No. If you're a follower of Christ, you and I have help in the Holy Spirit. Seek his help. Call out to him. Do everything you can which is in your control to run away from that particular sin. Secondly and finally, remember Christ took your judgment upon himself. You know, we began our time thinking upon different kinds of judgment. But there is one judgment that if you're a follower of Christ, you and I do not regularly consider, but we should regularly consider and remember, it is the one that has already taken place for you and for me. That is, if you're a follower of Christ, and it is the judgment for our sins. You see, God's word reminds us that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took this judgment upon himself when he was crucified just outside the city near Jerusalem. He suffered death on your behalf and mine so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And because your sin and mine were judged at the cross, Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I praise God that we who are children of God will never have to pay the penalty for a single sin that we have committed or will commit. Because God loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. That is, Jesus Christ, the son of God, through his death has appeased the wrath of God and reconciled us to him. What a wonderful and a comforting truth that is. Remember, Christ took your judgment upon himself. I closed. Recently I was watching a video where Todd Friel was interacting with a girl. I think it was a college campus. And the girl asks, 
I'm wondering about what the parameters of getting into heaven are, uh, to which he responds, perfection. And so, is there anyone in heaven right now, she asks. Yes, he responds. So they are in heaven because they were perfect, to which he responds, no. So let me get this straight, she says. The parameters to get into heaven is perfection. The people who are in heaven, there are people who are in heaven, but no, nobody has been perfect. And so how is this possible? I would credit her at least by wanting to clarify what Todd was saying. Otherwise, most of the times at this point of time, they are like gone from there. But she persists and she says, can you explain to me how is that possible? And here's what he answers. His answer, grace. Grace. And then he goes on to share the gospel with her. Our sins were laid on the only man who was ever perfect. And his righteousness was given to us. What a gracious God we have. As you think of this section, there are many things that are in this chapter that you can influence your thinking, that can influence your thinking. But if you take anything from this, remember, God in his son took your judgment upon himself. You do not have to live in sin anymore. Let me close our time in a word of prayer as I ask the worship team to come and lead us in a closing song. Father, thank you for these wonderful reminders from your word. A tough passage to study and to, to hear, to listen a lesson on, and yet it overflows with your goodness and your grace. Because if we did not have the New Testament, we wouldn't even know that Lot was a believer, that he was a righteous man. Nothing explains that, O oh Lord, except that you were gracious to him, that you set your favor upon him. For those of us who are in Christ, it's a great reminder that you have set your favor upon us. Help that that would keep us humble, O oh Lord. Help us to be committed to sharing about this grace with others who are lost and on their way to an eternity apart from you. Thank you once again for our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.